Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. We're your hosts. My name is Aaron Hedenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is a show dedicated to insightful discussion about the art, craft, and business of music arranging and composition. Please subscribe to this podcast for future episodes. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Episode 6 of the Arrangers Podcast. Uh, this is Aaron Hedenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. Uh, Drew, tell me how things are going today. It's okay. We're doing all right. It's uh, another hot day down here in Tejas, Texas. Mm. Yeah, but uh, it's good. Working on projects and, and trying to do some writing and practicing, as always. How about you? Things are pretty good. I uh, just got... Uh, Done with a pretty busy leg of traveling, um, doing some playing with a group called Tributary in Boston and through the Midwest, and uh, just kind of getting settled back in. So things are things are pretty good. Awesome, awesome. I'm looking forward to this episode because it's our first score study episode, and that's something that really really excites me. Yeah, we've been talking about it for a while now, and especially coming off the David Berger interview that we recently did, I think it would be really perfect to analyze one of the scores that he he transcribed, as a matter of fact. So the piece we're talking about is Duke Ellington's Concerto for Cootie, which is a brilliant piece of music written to feature the great Cootie Williams on trumpet. What we're hoping to do in this score study is look a little deeper beyond the general sounds and really investigate some key musical elements of this and hopefully provide some insights that you can go home and check out yourself and begin to use some of these concepts potentially in your own arrangement or just for your general knowledge and appreciation of music. There's really not a better place to start in jazz than one of the greatest jazz composers of all time, Duke Ellington. This is a very fitting way to start our score study series, which we're hoping to, to continue doing in the future. So let's dive in with a little historical information about the piece. This piece was written in 1940, or at least it was credited to be written in 1940, like we said, to feature Cootie Williams. And you might hear the same melody from the A section in a later piece, Do Nothing Till You Hear From Me, and that earliest recording was in 1943. So three years later, you hear a recording with the the same melody as the A section from this piece in that tune, except it has vocals. Do nothing till you hear from me. Pay no attention to what's said. Why people tear the seam of anyone's dream is over my head. Do nothing till you. Yes, it's a very wonderful, beautiful melody, and, and let's go ahead and, and talk about it right away. Uh, like Aaron said, it's, it's, it's very similar to the melody of Do Nothing Till You Hear From Me, uh, and it really features that iconic note in jazz and blues, which is the uh, blue note, the, the minor third used in context of a major melody. 
right there. That uh, that note right there is a very expressive note, and it's used over and over again uh, throughout the A section of this phrase. It's not just a repeat, but also on the... That little motif right there makes wonderful use of that blue note to make the melody even more expressive and mournful in a certain way. And so that, that melody, you know, it's, it's, it's all over, except when we get to the glorious bridge of this tune, where the melody takes a, a whole new turn and really becomes, not only we move into a new key, which we'll talk about later, but it's very, it's very striking and memorable melodic moment. Whereas the the A section melody is very descending uh, for the most part. It's it's chromatic. It's nestled within a perfect fourth for the most part. Um, The first interval of this melody is an octave. It leaps up, comes down, and works its way back up again. It's, uh, It's a dynamic contrast to the to the original A section melody. Yeah, and the uh, the character of the bridge melody is really a, a contrast to the character of the um, the original melody in the A section because it's a lot more romantic and it's a little more exuberant. It, it feels very joyful, and uh, in a way, it's kind of the climax of the piece. And very the so. the A section is kind of like a walking down the street kind of bluesy melody, you know, mm-hmm. which. Uh, so the contrast between the two is really striking to me. Definitely. It's, it's further accented by the fact, getting into timbre and instrumentation just for a minute here, by the fact that the uh, A sections are played with a pixie mute and a plunger, and suddenly for this uh, magnificent bridge section, he opens the trumpet. No longer is it muted. It's, it really sings. So Ellington uses this melody in the trumpet but he also uses it in the other instruments of the band as a call and response in different places. And he also makes the background parts extremely melodic as well. Mm-hmm. So this is something that's really important for all of us to remember is that, you know, even though the main melody is going to be your featured melody, all of the background parts need to be melodic in and of themselves. So for example, when this melody comes in, that trombone part has this really soulful kind of gospely melody and it continues that way where the the background parts are also very strong melodically and so this is something that that i think great composers do is they they make every part of the music count they don't just make the main melody the only thing that's memorable absolutely yeah, just in the in the intro itself, the the first thing is the trumpet, and then immediately echoed by the saxophones, albeit in a different harmony, but still very uh, uh, very much the melody. And then again with the whole two D ensemble together, and it happens uh, several locations in the piece. The background figures, much like in a the relationship between orchestra and soloist, like in a concerto, same with here, the with the band and the trumpet, they're repeating the melodic figures, as you said, in multiple places in this piece. 
to add to that, one thing that I remember David Berger talking to us about in the interview was how Duke Ellington uh, and a lot of other composers, including David, will try to make every line, even the inner harmony parts, into a melodic part. And when you right. study the score, you really see that. I mean, these inner parts are pretty intuitive. None of them are jumping around and leaping around in a, a way that makes it hard to play. And even the bass motion oftentimes is very melodic, chromatic voice leading or just very intuitive ways of, of leading from one chord to the next. I'd like to move the conversation into that of form um, because it's actually, in my opinion, one of the most interesting things about this piece. Often as jazz composers, we look at form and say, oh, it's a 32-bar form, boom, okay, that's my form. 32 bars, uh, repeat, solos, shout, end, right? But that is so not what Duke Ellington does in this piece. Even though there's clearly a certain form outlined here, what I love in particular is the number of odd measure phrases. You know, often we have eight, eight, eights, lots of eight-bar phrases. But the very first phrase is... A, it's kind of like a six-bar phrase plus a four, so it's, it's like a ten-bar phrase, more asymmetrical. And then the same thing happens in the next A section. It's another ten-bar phrase. So um, the internal form of this piece, it's, it follows an A, A, B, A, uh, and then you get this, what, what we were talking about earlier, that bridge is actually more like a C section. And that's where we get this sudden movement to, to D-flat. Um, and then he brings it back at the end with an A section and out with a coda. It's really a, it's, it's a, it's a lesson in how to break out of eight-bar phrases, how to break out of the typical 32-bar form and bring interest to a piece through non-repetitive repetition. <laughs> how do you like that one? Oh, that's good, Drew. That's good. It's gold. It's so simple. I mean, just the, the whole idea of tagging on two extra bars to an eight-bar phrase, it's not that hard for any of us to do, but it's just something where you maybe sometimes in the back of your mind you think, maybe this is wrong for me to put these extra two bars. or you know. But when you look at, at composers like Duke Ellington, he clearly feels like a sense of freedom to do that. And in a lot of ways, my guess is that you know, he's sort of instinctually feeling that, you know, if I put an extra two bars at the end of this phrase, it's just going to have that little extra sophistication that, that I want in this piece. And, and in some ways, it's kind of encouraging that, you know, we can kind of follow those instincts if we ever are sitting at the piano going, should I add these extra two bars? If it feels good, you should do it. And in this case, it definitely feels good. And I just love that it makes a, a very simple piece a lot more interesting when you can do these small, subtle things that um, take simple material and make them a little bit less predictable. Right. Absolutely. You know, um, you were mentioning, so there's kind of this internal form. It starts off with an intro and then it does an A-A-B-A, where the A is kind of this um, bluesy melody. So on the B section, he kind of sticks to a blues-oriented sound, which is to say he starts on an, on an F chord, the one chord, and then goes to the dominant four chord, and then back to the one chord. So he really lets the, the band uh, kind of sit on that sound for a bit on the, on the B section. That is exactly, that's further brought out by 
to get into timbre again is he Cootie begins to start growling and using the plunger more expressively than he did before, not just using it as a as a static sound. And that further brings out the bluesiness of this section. And then within the bigger form, you kind of have these almost you ha- you have almost this organization like a sonata where you have the A A B A, which you could consider as the kind of the big A, right. and that's in the key of F. Then it modulates the key of D flat, a major third down um, kind of development, if you will. And then back to an A prime, where it goes back to the original melody, but just for a little bit. It's it's not like it's a fully uh, a full statement of the melody kind of returns to that at, at the end. So you could think of that as a recapitulation of, of sorts, although we're definitely not being very strict with these terms. We're just th- we're just trying to find ways of kind of describing the overall form because it's not necessarily something you can just put into this clean-cut box. Yeah, it, it is definitely following some sort of this. And Duke Ellington was a very well-versed in the classical tradition and and had a philosophy of jazz was just as much to be respected as any other kind of music, but in particular, Western classical music. That's the seriousness and the uh, sobriety with which he approached his own compositions. And so with this little analysis we're doing, hopefully it uh, we're, we're paying homage to his intentions in comparing it there was certainly uh, an intention there with him titling the piece Concerto for Cootie. There's that uh, reference there. It's a very, it's a classical nomenclature. And so that's something that um, we can definitely use to help our analysis of this piece. So I've always been kind of a voicing uh, nerd. Um, I just, (laughs) for me, I love uh, voicings and, and sitting down at the piano and coming up with interesting ways of voicing things. Sometimes I can get lost in the in the bigger picture because I'm so focused on these little voicings, but but I think um, there's some really interesting uh, voicing concepts and techniques in this piece that we can that we can take away. Um, right off the bat, the first uh, melody statement or the the introductory melody statement is followed by so it goes bum bo do 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 so that second statement of the melody was in the saxes with a clarinet lead, which is something that was very typical for the time. When you look at the score, it's actually pretty basic uh, the way he voices this. Um, it starts on a G7 with the 9 in the first melody note, and then it just arpeggiates up. And really, all he's doing in that first measure is block voicing. And what we mean by that is it's a kind of a textbook definition of when you have the melody doubled down an octave, and then you just stack up the voicings within that. Uh, within that. So... Basically, you have five voices that are just filling in the chord tones. That's it. Very simple. 
Exactly. Yep. And so he just crawls up there. And then here's another textbook example of great voicing, which is in the following measure, the, the clarinet lead part is starting to get pretty high up there. And if you've played any of the saxophones like alto and tenor and barry, you know that they're, they don't go that high compared to a clarinet. And so one thing that you want to do is if you feel like the lead line is getting too high so that the tenors and the berry aren't going to be able to reach their notes, then you do what's called a drop two voicing, which is where you take the second voice below the, the melody, the second voice from the top, and you just drop it down an octave. So you have uh, a stretch of a tenth or a ninth or maybe even eleventh, depending on the voicing. And... What you have is a slightly more spread out voicing, but it still has the, the same notes in it. So once he gets to this high B flat, he does drop two voicings. So he splits out and it, it ends up being really beautiful because it's melodic for all the parts because they don't have to jump around. Yes. And uh, what happens next is also wonderful. Literally what he does here is take the melody that we've already heard in the trumpet and simply harmonize it using chromatic planing seventh chords moving down, which is really an incredible sound. And I'm obsessed with Jacob Collier right now. And this is a sound that he uses religiously. So, but it's nothing new. It's been being used for, uh, for decades. So, so here's that, that melody is as I played it, and then the harmony is literally going like this. And uh, at first, it's, it's there's simple chord tones. It's the third at first, which just doesn't seem particularly colorful. But then suddenly it moves to the ninth, third, sharp 11, ninth, uh, seventh, excuse me, 13th, flat 13th and then the seventh, which is the tritone from the key, so it feels even, even though there's uh, not a whole lot of color in this chord, it's still a very colorful chord considering that it's the tritone related to the key center. B9. <laughs> so, and, and to be quite frank, this is a technique that Duke uses over literally the entire piece. The very next 2D section is the exact same thing. The, uh, the melody continues in the clarinet, and the rest of the brass and the saxophones continue their descending dominant 13 chords. Um, a really brilliant sound. And everywhere in the piece, this happens, particularly in the saxophones. It happens later, it happens halfway through the piece, and it happens right before the bridge. And then, right, one of my favorite moments is right before the ending, when for the only time in the whole piece, the, the same thing happens, the chromatic planing against the melody, except it's ascending instead of descending. The whole piece, it's descending, descending, descending. And then just to provide the perfect amount of variation right at the end, Duke makes it ascend and uh, provide us with that ascending color, which is extremely beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing when you just look at this, how organized this piece really is. And one thing that's really cool about this introductory thing where he, he does these descending um, dominant chords is 
the first statement descends and ends on a B9 chord, B dominant ninth, and then the next one resumes from a B flat and keeps going down. So it just keeps, it's literally just going down in half steps until it reaches the end. And it's like, he really commits to this sound of the descending um, descending dominant chords. And I, I've started to use this all the time in my arrangements because it's great and you can apply it to other things too. Like it doesn't have to be dominant chords. It can be other things or you could descend in whole steps or you could descend in minor thirds or, I mean, you can take this concept and expand it out and kind of manipulate it in different ways. But the idea is that the melody is such a simple and tonally oriented melody where it's, it's hitting chord tones and it's the only real chromaticism is that blue note. But in the, in the bass harmony, you're hearing the harmony shift. It, it's like disorienting you from the tonal center. And, and uh, like Drew was mentioning, it, it starts to highlight different chord colors that are much more sophisticated, like the sharp 11th or the 13th or the flat 13th or the flat 9th or any of these extended chord colors which make which make jazz really sing and, and which add some juice and color. energy to the chord, you know, color. And so it's, it's just a great way to uh, manipulate some motivic material. And it's like, if you're ever stuck in a rut and you don't know what to write next, you can just try it, you know, see if it, see if it gives you some ideas. And what I love is in the very next session, you were talking before about the call and response in the brass and the saxophones. I love the the gospel influenced chords, the the trombone mm-hmm. voicings here. A little modern gospel chord there. <laughs> yeah, gosh, it's ahead of its time. I know it really is. It's it's beautiful and and even with the with the bass in there, you know that really incredible. cool. It's incredible. So. Uh, and you don't you don't hear all those subtleties on the recording necessarily, but it's, I think it's, you definitely feel it. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, that's uh, that's definitely something using gospel voicings like this, harmonizing a scale just using uh, one and and minor two. Yeah, and you hear that in Wolfpack nowadays. Yeah, exactly. But Duke yeah. Ellington was doing it back in 1940. Yeah, something it it comes all the way back from from, from the black church in particular, mm-hmm. and how how they how the gospel choirs would would harmonize a traditional hymn um, yeah. using three part harmonies, alto, uh, soprano, alto, tenor, and uh, using that to stay within the so that way uh, most of the time everyone would be singing a note within the key, so you wouldn't have to be singing all these chromatic pitches. It's very effective and gets a real uh, robust sound. I want to um, highlight another thing here, which is sometimes in the voicings he'll he'll do some other things like unison, you know, alto and tenor playing a unison line. Uh, it's kind of a common thing that he'll do, um, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's it's intimidating to think about unison lines. Maybe maybe in your head you think, is this too simple? Is this not you know full sounding enough? Maybe it's going to sound like I'm an amateur if I write some unison lines where where there's no harmony. 
And I think it, it depends on the spot you're writing in. I mean, obviously, there are times when, when it calls for harmony, but there are times definitely where, where the unison is a great sound, and it, it can be a really nice contrast to everything being harmonized all the time. Yes, yes. You listen to any Jazz Messengers chart, and often 50% of the time they're playing in unison. They have three horns. A lot of they have three horns, but they're playing in unison. It's it's dynamic. It's powerful, and it's it uh, you know it it makes such a nice contrast. And not to mention, it's just <laughs> it's a little easier to write. Uh, you know, you don't have to be thinking about harmonizing every note. It'll make your music breathe, and it'll uh, not be incredibly difficult to harmonize everything all the time too. Another interesting feature here is something that. Uh, I remember talking about in arranging classes in in college and something that I was kind of almost skeptical of at at times. Someone would say, if your uh, harmonies are going to make the part too jumpy, then you can voice cross in the inner harmonies. And I Mm. I would always think to myself, do people really do that? Well, it turns out that there is one spot where, where Ellington does this in this piece, which is in measure 15, the Barry and the tenor um, actually cross voices a couple times in order to make the parts more melodic. So it actually does happen. Right. Right. Totally does. So that's kind of a neat thing. Speaking more about harmony, there's lots of chromatic motion that we talked about, but overall this before, until we get to that glorious D flat section, the piece is really centered in F. Most of the time, the bass is, is playing Fs or, or within the F major scale, and uh, it really it feels grounded in that blues tradition, uh, and particularly just hanging around F dominant or F major. Um, occasionally, it goes to some other chords, but it, it's centered in that key. So when we get to that C section, uh, the, the D flat section, the it really opens up. It's really dramatic. Uh, that relationship of a major third between F and D flat is is not a. Uh, they're not closely related like F and B flat or F and C. They're they're over. Let's see. It's it's four flats away. So it's really a dramatic shift in the color, and this is something that I think. Uh, writers all over can can benefit from doing when you get to a new section changing the key and not just going to the dominant or the subdominant can be a really it, it can potentially be a very satisfying and lyrical shift to put your melody in a new light particularly for this because the melody um, sits in such a higher tessitura you know if you think about the key of G on the trumpet, they're not going to be playing in the screaming register. So it's going to be overall, uh, if, if you're hanging around tonic in the third, it's going to be a lower and softer timbre. Whereas D flat, which is E flat on the trumpet, that's, uh, you have two octaves that you can play with, you know, the, the lower octave, which will be dark, or that upper octave, which will really sing and uh, project um, that in a way that if you're hanging around those notes in concert F major, it simply won't happen. So it's uh, it's strategic on the point of Duke to get the trumpet into a higher register, so the there's that contrast. But it's furthermore, uh, it's it's a uh, a real dramatic change in color and really provides some beautiful contrast. 
Another thing that I think we can um, take from this bridge section is that um, even within these little subtle background lines, we see this use of chromaticism showing up um, with the, uh, the five to the sharp five to the six to the dominant seventh, like this crawling inner harmony. If you, can you play that? And this is something that you kind of hear in a lot of um, like like even contemporary pop music is this mm-hmm. sort of uh, like this this crawling fifth going up to the the sharp five going up to the sixth going up to the seventh. It's got a very it like it, it sounds like Stevie Wonder to me when when you mm-hmm. put it on that um, electric piano sound, <laughs> you know. Right. But but it just and and that's an interesting point in and of itself because I think it shows that the um, contemporary music that we hear nowadays really does trace a lot of, of the roots back to blues and jazz. But I think uh, on a thematic level, this use of chromaticism, it, it's, whether it was a, an instinctual decision or, or maybe just a convention that, that sounded good, I think it definitely, on, on some level, um, fits into the overall scheme of the piece, which, which is to say that Chromaticism is sort of like a unifying sound that we hear throughout this piece. So, Drew, uh, I, I consider you uh, very much a uh, an expert in orchestration. I, I I would say that I I really work hard to to orchestrate when I when I do my pieces, but I think you have a natural knack for it. Do you, do you have any thoughts on orchestration um, in this piece? That's very sweet of you, Aaron. I'm still learning, just like everybody. Um, but what I what I notice is that this piece is... is um, I don't think we would say it's particularly known for its orchestration. There's, I wouldn't... It's beautiful, and it's functional. I wouldn't say there's anything groundbreaking orchestrationally here, because in general, the the various sections of the big band are treated uh, in a very classical, I suppose, way. Uh, not Western classical, but just a very classic big band way. When the reeds play, they play all together. When the brass plays, they play all together. The 2D sections are orchestrated uh, in a very typical fashion. You have the bones playing by themselves from time to time, the saxophones harmonizing together. When the trump, whenever the trumpets play, they're always playing with the trombones. It's a, it's a great resource to use for how to create effective and good-sounding big band voicings because the instruments are being used in a very classic and typical fashion, which works really well for conveying this style of music. You're absolutely right. The use of orchestration is very textbook in this piece. It's not, mm-hmm. uh, and Duke Ellington has some pieces where that's not the case. I mean, he definitely has some right. material where he stretches the orchestration and and does some really unorthodox things. But in this particular case, for the most part, it's it's fairly straightforward. Very much so. There's a couple moments that he uses the saxophones all together, and then he'll use one trombone in addition to that, to kind of meet th- uh, thicken that uh, saxophone voicing. Sometimes he's doubling notes, and other times it's, it, you'll often see the trombone moving in a really clear, stepwise fashion, really, uh, like David was saying in our interview, thinking of each voice as a melody. The trombone in particular is really 
driven melodically there. And so that's that's something that's particularly interesting. One or one orca- orchestrational note here is that there's really very little piano, if any at all. There's that that you know the the entire chordal accompaniment from this piece comes from the horns. And so there was no guitar in Duke's band, of course, and Duke played piano, but he's laying out for this whole piece. It's really a sparse texture, you know, perhaps the first statement with the trombones playing those gospel voicings. You know, perhaps that would have been, I'm sure he conceived of that on the piano, because they're very piano-friendly voicings. But instead of or, instead of having the piano play it, he has the trombones play it every time, which is a, a, a wonderful choice. Perhaps if he did another draft of this, maybe the piano would play it the first time, and then the trombones play it the second time. I'm not sure. But that absence of piano is definitely a, a clear orchestrational choice as well. Sometimes less is more. And in this case, I mean... I didn't even notice that. I mean, until you just <laughs> pointed it out just now, I didn't even miss any of the, the piano stuff that's not in here. I mean, like, and the drums aren't doing a whole lot no. either. I mean, they're pretty much just kind of Tipping. playing playing accompaniment. And, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, this just shows the absolute mastery of Ellington when it comes to writing because it's, it's really, really tough to write a piece where the written parts cover all of the stuff you need. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, with, with jazz arranging, you're, you're relying on the drummer to do his thing and do his, his fills and to do his, uh, his thing to make it better. Or you're relying on the pianist and the, the guitar player to add their comping to fill in any gaps. In this particular case, um, he doesn't need any of that, you know. He he does it all in the in the parts. Yeah, no, I, that's uh, yeah. <laughs> There's very little slashes here. The bass player is playing a written bass line a lot of the time. I imagine a couple places he's improvising, but you can tell there's too much chromatic movement for that all to be purely improvised. It's all a lot of that is written out, which again goes back to the title concerto for Cudi. You know how his 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 approach to this piece and how it uh, merges that uh, jazz and classical tradition in a way. Well, we, we can't mention Duke Ellington without mentioning the, that his orchestra only had three trombones with no bass trombone. And in this particular piece, um, three trumpets playing section parts because Cootie's playing the uh, solo part. And so it's a, it's a six brass arrangement, not counting the solo. And speaking to the saxophone section, it's the same as a modern big band, two altos, two tenors, and a baritone. Um, But Duke Ellington was particularly known for writing for his band, writing for his very talented band members and their unique talents. And no exception, the, the second tenor player is playing lead clarinet in this piece. We believe in this piece, it's Barney Begard. It was also uh, Jimmy Hamilton uh, famously held that chair for a long time, but we believe for this recording, it's, it's, it's Barney. Um, but that's a, it's another iconic, more old-fashioned jazz sound, having clarinet lead with two altos, a tenor, and a berry. It's a really lovely sound, and particularly if you want to get your band sounding a little more old-fashioned, and if you have a talented clarinet player, using that as your lead instead of your lead alto is a, is a very wonderful tone color. I want to emphasize a point that, that David 
um, Berger was bringing up a lot, which is it was really refreshing to talk to him about writing music because he had so much experience over the years witnessing these great arrangers, these great bands play. And I think one of his overall sentiments was that it's harder to write for personal bands nowadays because it's like, you know, you're writing for maybe school big bands or, or whatever. And Ellington, I mean, the, the thing that makes his writing great is that he knew his players. He knew how they played. He was able to write featured solos that highlighted their particular sound, their particular strengths. He was able to workshop these pieces with them too and, and maybe evolve them over time on the road. And this is something that I don't know if we can necessarily recreate that entirely in a big band sense in this day and age because you know we don't have the the same culture of of touring with big bands for months at a time, but, Mm -hmm. but I think it's, it's important, you know, if, if you're running your own band or if you're putting together a recording session, who's playing your parts really makes a big difference. I mean, you, you really have to find the players that are going to make your music have a voice. Right. Makes a huge, huge difference. Okay. Well, Aaron, we did it. Our very first score study. This was a lot of fun. I feel like I'm going back to school. It's, it's, it's a good thing. We get to go back and, and really analyze these pieces and, and check out what's, what's going on with them and hopefully share some insights to some of our listeners. And uh, we'll be doing this again in the near future. All right, we want to do a quick Q&A segment because... Uh, one of our goals here is to create a sense of community and um, dialogue. And so we encourage you to write in any questions or comments or, or things that you um, have about jazz arranging, composition, uh, or anything else uh, to the arrangers podcast at gmail.com. We have one question today that comes in to us from Andrew Sharp. Andrew writes in, Hey guys, are there any specific strategies for getting better at contrapuntal writing, particularly in the context of an ensemble soli? Wow, what a great question. Mm-hmm. The best way, in my opinion, is to really listen and analyze contrapuntal music. And we all know who the king of contrapuntal music is. Elvis? Elvis. Wait, no. Uh, <laughs> Johann Sebastian Bach. Yes. If you, I recommend checking out his inventions, his sinfonias, his fugues, and any of his other pieces for that matter. But really checking out those to see how within a tonal setting he operates contrapuntally. The, the complexity of it might not even apply to what you're doing with a subject and counter subject and episodes and, 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 and these things, but just how things operate rhythmically, you know, um, how to begin to construct your own contrapuntal lines. One of the things that I always say to beginners right away is make sure you don't stop your lines when the counterpoint comes in. Hmm, a lot of the times yeah. it'll be, here's a line... That's that's more call and response than it is counter line, counterpoint. If you have something, 
even if you just hold that note. You know, something like this. That's a very Bach-influenced kind of thing, you know? Um, yeah. Just improvising. Probably pretty crappy, but <laughs> um, that's, uh, that's, you know, that's somewhere to start uh, to not necessarily stop your lines right when your counterpoint comes in. Definitely. And, you know, I, I completely agree. I mean, you have to listen to music with good counterpoint. One of the best things that I did to work on counterpoint skills was I actually took a couple classes while I was in college. One of them was a, a Renaissance counterpoint class where we went through the conventions of, you know, old church music uh, chant and, and all of the different conventions that you were supposed to follow to make that music stylistically appropriate. And I remember, you know, submitting the assignments and getting all these red marks back. You know, this is this is not right. This is not right. And it really kind of worked on on the idea of discipline within writing counterpoint. You know, you're you're thinking about the melodic line on the horizontal plane and the the intervallic line on the vertical plane, and, and both of them have to check out. So the other class I took was a Baroque counterpoint where we studied the music of Bach, and that was a completely different set of conventions that you had to get used to. And, and we had textbooks for these things where they would, they would kind of break down some of the rules and conventions. And for me, it just kind of taught me a, a whole other level of discipline when it comes to writing counterpuntal lines. And then when I got to the, the jazz arranging situations where I had to write counterpoint, I felt a, a tremendous sense of freedom in the sense that, you know, jazz is something that I've listened to a whole lot. And I, I think because it's a more contemporary style, we already know the conventions of jazz if you've, if you've played it and studied it. So you can really just use your ear to, to make sure it sounds good, but then you can still think about it horizontally and vertically so that the intervals check out. And so I don't particularly follow a set of rules other than just what I know my ear likes to hear. But I still apply the same disciplines in terms of how what are, what are the intervals created between these these multiple lines. And when you do that, you can you can start focusing on intervals that rub against each other in certain ways. So maybe maybe you have a part of your counterline where the melody line and the counterline are in a whole step, and there's a little bit of that dissonance there, and then the bottom line moves down a step, and now you have this oblique motion. And so you're still using the same concepts that you would with a, a Bach piece, where you have oblique, you have parallel motion, and you have contrary motion. These things still apply. It's just that you're not, you're, you have more freedom with jazz because there's not these same senses of, of rules that, you know, we, we, can, we can really do anything we want. Yes, yes. And just as a quick, uh, another resource for you, a great place to check out Big Band Counterpoint is the writing of Bill Holman. He wrote great harmonies too, but he's particularly known for his contrapuntal writing, his unison writing, and, and, and the counterpoint within. So that can be a, a nice resource on the jazz side. I mean, there's great counterpoint everywhere. We're, these are just, this is just a few examples. So. Absolutely. And, and um, I remember our mentor, Rich DeRosa, even pointing out in, in an arranging class that um, everything is contrapuntal, including rhythm. So if you have, right. um, have hi-hat on two and four in a typical swing groove, 
that in and of itself is a counterpoint to a baseline that's on one and three as the emphasis. So even within that sort of sub-level, you have rhythmic counterpoint. And, and I like to think of it also, just as a, a kind of a final thought from me, counterpoint needs to have balance between the two lines. If one line is doing the primary moving and the other line is not, you might want to consider depending on the situation, this isn't a hard and fast rule by any means, but you might consider giving a little more motion to the bottom line. And that's something that you just use your instincts and decide based on your taste. Right. Exactly. Well, thanks for writing in, Andrew. Hopefully that helps. Yeah. And stay tuned and be sure to email more of your questions into thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. We'll do our best to answer your questions and talk about arranging with you. You know, if you haven't subscribed already, you really should, because how else will you stay on top of all of the uh, new episodes that we have coming up? Tell your friends, your musician friends, or your people who are interested in composition and arranging to check out this podcast and like us on Facebook and, and drop us a line when you can, telling us if you appreciated uh, what we're doing or some topics that you would like to hear us talk about. Absolutely. We're all about building community. We're all about helping the community of aspiring arrangers to get better at their craft and to get some inspiration. So drop us a line. I believe we have another exciting interview coming up next. Is that right, Aaron? That's right. We have an interview with the great trombonist, arranger, and um, longtime Prince collaborator and head of the Hornheads, Mike Nelson. So please stay tuned for that exciting installment and likely after that we'll be doing a score study on one of Prince's pieces with looking at the horns and how it's all arranged and stuff so stay tuned for that thanks for listening guys and we hope you've enjoyed this as much as we have keep writing and we'll see you next time bye bye